is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Charles Feldman. Tina Turner. She's dead. Her music will live on. We'll go in-depth. And also, Target reacts to conservative backlash over pride clothes. And Congressman Adam Schiff responds to a plan to fine him millions of dollars. We start, though, with the death of Tina Turner. Gary Bryan is the morning host at station K-Earth 101. And Alan Cross is a noted music journalist. Gentlemen, thank you both for being with us. You're welcome. Hey, guys. Gary, let me start with you. What was the it that Tina Turner had that made her Tina Turner? You know, I think that she was one of those people. I, you know, I first saw her when I was 17 years old at a rock festival up the Sky River Rock Festival on the, on the border of Washington and Oregon. And it was Ike and Tina Turner and the Cats, And uh, she had such intensity on stage. She was such a pro- projecting so much wild sexuality, right? And it was like mind-blowing for a 17-year-old. Then flash forward three years later, she was one of the first celebrities that I ever interviewed. And she was in the movie Tommy. And I was scared to death to even talk to her. And I got got her on the phone. And she, obviously, as everybody who knows her will tell you, was one of the sweetest, nicest, classiest people you've ever wanted to talk to. Uh, Alan, uh, I want to ask you, uh, it is said that she had such great influence on music, and I don't think anybody would argue that on on artists who were her contemporaries and also those who came after her. What would be missing in music today if it were not for Tina Turner? Well, she owns uh, a lot of where female singers went in rock. They owe a lot to Tina Turner because... When she first came out with Ike in the early 1960s and started singing songs like uh, Mountain High River Deep and um, Proud Mary and all those those big hits that they had, there was there weren't any women singing like she did with that raw sexuality, that raspy voice. Um, maybe Janis Joplin, but you know, between the two of them, they redefined what it meant to be a female singer in rock, and that legacy has continued down through the decades. Gary, it's it's easy in one respect to think of her, especially her earlier life, as as uh, being a victim because she was uh, having suffered great abuse at the uh, hand of her then uh, husband. Um, but in the end, her life really was one of great victory, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it had a lot to do with her spirituality. Uh, you know, the last time I saw her, she was on the air with us in New York. And uh, when she came in and, and she was just so at peace, she walked into the room and and uh, you just fell in love with her again and again, over and over again. I asked her during that interview, I said, who is your, because she was so classy, I said, who is your fashion icon? And she said, I really try to emulate Jackie Onassis. And <laughs> I said, that that is so, like, not what people would think of Tina. I want to go back for a second, too, because... The whole Ike and Tina thing and the whole style of Tina Turner and a lot of people who are rock fans, especially white kids, we didn't realize there was this whole thing called the Chitlin Circuit down in the South. And that's where they built these really frenetic acts because they go into these clubs and uh, into these the, on the Chitlin Circuit. And they had to have a super intense act. And when they got in front of these you know, white audiences, 
we were like blown away with the intensity and the energy and the passion. And it, it did change music when that kind of music, that kind of like raw emotion came into uh, the rock world where it was, you know, mostly poppy kind of rock. And she was very real. We want to thank our uh, guest, Gary Bryan, morning host on our sister station, K-Earth 101, also Alan Cross, a uh, uh, renowned music journalist. Right now, though, Target is removing some items from its stores and making other changes to its LGBTQ plus clothing. Now, this comes after some backlash from customers that involved confronting workers and even tipping over displays. Michael Bokai is a professor at the University at Buffalo School of Law and an expert on LGBTQ plus rights. And Armin uh, Kurdian is a conservative political analyst and a retired Navy captain from the San Diego area. Both of you, thanks for being with us. Good afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, let me start with you, uh, Michael. Uh, what is the bigger thing that seems to be going on in this country right now? Because this started with uh, this issue started with the Bud Light. Now it has spilled over into Target. What is going on in a kind of macro sense? Well, in a macro sense, I think you can see these controversies involving, you know, corporate um, merchandise and advertising uh, against the backdrop of an onslaught of anti-LGBTQ politics and policy and legislation, right? In some sense, this is just sort of the, the tip of an iceberg of much more serious uh, backlash, to use your word, against LGBTQ progress. And, uh, Armin, let me ask you this. Uh, in conservative circles, of which you are a conservative political analyst, uh, the culture war wars are definitely heating up, and the primary target this time around appears to be LGBTQ+. And in some instances, people were complained about they, they put these LGBTQ displays in target up front. They didn't like that because kids might see it. But uh, am I wrong to ask you if some conservatives view that is that's not really the problem? There should be no LGBTQ plus seen or visible in public, in stores, anywhere at all. So I wouldn't uh, necessarily uh, agree with that. We've we've got this thing called the First Amendment, which allows you freedom of expression. I just came back from a trip in New York City where I see pride merchandise that's being marketed everywhere, and in fact. You know, Target is not <laughs> the first company to, to merchandise this kind of uh, material. It's you just do a search online. You see it's uh, a lot of the major re retailers doing it. So I don't think it's necessarily uh, speaking to the, you know, the narrow version of what Target was doing. It's not necessarily marketing to the LGBTQ uh, population. I think it's their marketing strategy and how they went about it, which has caused a bit of a backlash you now. To your other point, Wait, uh, I, 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 I want to you know, stop you there because I want you to explain sure. briefly what you mean by that. What was wrong in your view with their marketing strategy? I think there is a big concern, uh, and there was a little bit of misinformation on this, but there was a big concern in the fact that there was some kids' clothing that was promoting uh, LGBTQ, and with a lot of uh, parents who are concerned about what's maybe happening in their schools or being uh, divorced from. Uh, some some things that happened with their kids in, in the schools in terms of the information and the, what they're being exposed to. 
and along with also the, the the conversation we're having on women's sports, I think there was some some concern to that that the way Target was promoting the line could be a a a loud approval of of what's happening. Now, I don't necessarily think that's Q plus community who were looking at this and saying this is just this is just a first step into something a lot darker in that uh, this whole group of people is being not only marginalized, not only pushed to the back of the room, pushed out of public view, they are being seen as the uh, bringers of everything that is bad in culture, and therefore they must be eradicated. Is that a slippery slope, or do they have a legitimate fear here that we are on the way to something worse? Well, I'm not exactly sure what what terrible future they're they're imagining, except one in which LGBTQ people can live openly openly as they are, and that and that appears to be the problem. I think you're exactly right that there is now this um, reinvigorated or or newly invigorated desire to truly, again, to use your word, but not just your word, um, eradicate LGBTQ people, particularly transgender people. Uh, from public life entirely. That's, I mean, I'm basically quoting Michael Knowles on that, right? That we need to eradicate, uh, quote unquote, transgenderism. And, and explain for the audience who that is. Uh, he's like a, you know, he's a he's a very extreme right wing uh, provocateur, basically. Um, I, you know, I can't say too much more, you know, about him. But you know, but you ask, you know, what's happening uh, in a, in, you know, in a larger context? And I think that, you know, what Armin said just now about. Um, the way that this has been um, publicized, the way this has been presented to to the public, right? This idea that there was something wrong with how Target rolled this out. Uh, no, what happened was, you know, the 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 usual sort of falsehood machine of the extreme anti-LGBTQ right, you know, just sort of uh, you know, and uh, pronouncing untruths, right, about uh, how and whether Target was was marketing particular things to to children uh and again and so to connect that to the larger context that's what we're seeing everywhere right the deployment uh of of uh uh highly exaggerated or totally false um narratives around children being used as uh as a cudgel to 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 eliminate lgbtq right. presence everywhere Ar armin in our closing few seconds uh, your final thoughts on this well, just to the one point about the, the children and you know what they're being exposed to, it's, it's not a false narrative. It's happening and it's well documented. But I think to the larger point, I think the question that we can all agree on is, you know, can we just like stop the political violence already? Uh, it seems like every time you turn on the news, whether it's uh, the right or the left, there's there's actions of, of violence. There's actions that are, you know, people getting physical uh, in opposition to someone's uh, political viewpoints. And unfortunately, I think that has also inflamed opinions on both sides and continue to polarize and divide the nation. So, you know, if, if that could just stop, if we just had some leadership that could make that message clear to everybody that just let's let's knock it off and let's start being more civil to each other. then you know, maybe what's what we're seeing uh, on some of these <laughs> videos, which are becoming all too common, um, might be a little bit less common. All right, uh, Armin uh, Kurdian, conservative political analyst, also Michael uh, Bukai, professor at the University of Buffalo School of Law. Florida Republican Congresswoman Anna Paulina Luna is calling for Burbank Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff to be censured and fined $16 million for going after allegations former President Trump colluded with Russia ahead of the 2016 election. Congressman Schiff is on with us today. Thank you for joining us. 
Great to be with you. There we are. Okay, so uh, this, I think, is is fallout from, I'm going to assume, the Durham report, uh, which uh, concluded without offering any uh, calls for any uh, charges for anyone of saying that the FBI should not have investigated or started an investigation into any alleged Trump connections with uh, Russia in the run-up to the 2016 election. Uh, do they have a point, first of all? And I'm, I'm going to assume you're going to say no because you're defending yourself here. Well, uh, no, I'm going to say no, because they don't have a point. Um, In fact, the Durham report, after spending four years and interviewing 400 plus people, uh, ended up proving nothing. Uh, They were supposed to find Donald Trump, asked Bill Barr to appoint this guy to find some deep state conspiracy um, involving Speaker Pelosi, myself, John Brennan, uh, Joe Biden. Uh, There were going to be criminal charges. It was all some kind of uh, conspiracy to incriminate Donald Trump. Of course, they found none of that because it didn't exist. Uh, The most they could do is not even say the investigation shouldn't have been done. The most he said was it should have been a preliminary investigation instead of a full one. Um, That is about as weak gruel as you can possibly find. Um, But what this is really about in terms of, of this Florida representative is she wants to be Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, this is sadly where the Republican conference is. Uh, it's an effort to gain notoriety, gain celebrity by introducing the most crazy stuff you can. In this case, a resolution to fine me $16 million. Um, it's what absurd. Is, what is it? Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, no, it's absurd. But, but more than that, you know, um, to spend the idea of spending time on the House floor with these kind of MAGA absurdities when uh, they're – they're going to take us over a cliff if they don't bring up a, a debt ceiling bill, a clean bill, um, is more than absurd. It's just uh, dangerous and, and damaging to the country. What is the uh, I'm curious, what is the, the history of uh, the success rate anyway for having members of the House censured and fined large sums of money? I, I think there's no history of that. Um, there are cases where members were fined if they were uh, misappropriating funds. Uh, and there are, are cases, I think, going back to the Civil War of, of other kind of uh, causes of censure. Uh, so it's it's an absurdity. But um, but but if you take it seriously, uh, the idea that you could try to silence a member or you could try to punish a member for investigating a corrupt president by fining them millions of dollars, uh, if that were the case, there would be no oversight in Congress. Um, and you know, taken seriously, it is yet another abuse of power, this time an abuse of congressional power by a transient majority in the House. Um, but uh, but I don't know whether to take this seriously or not, because the member offering it um, uh, is merely trying to uh, be the next Marjorie Taylor Greene. Well, we did reach out to Congresswoman Luna's office to get some kind of response, but we uh, did not get a response. So that leaves the floor uh, to you. But in this Republican House, is there a possibility that they're going to go ahead and, and do this and, and you better start uh, gathering up some funds? <laughs> well, you know, I, I wouldn't say that anything is impossible uh, in the House right now with this kind of a majority. Um, they're capable, really, of anything. Uh, sadly, it is the lunatics in charge of the asylum. Uh, so anything is possible. But I, I do think that probably the Republicans realize that uh, would they want to have a precedent where – um, if they lose the majority, their members are sanctioned millions and millions of dollars. I think that they are uh, capable of realizing just how insane this is. 
But but who knows? Uh, You know, if they're going to take the country over a fiscal cliff, then they're capable of doing anything. Since you've alluded uh, twice to the uh, debt ceiling issue, uh, let me very quickly ask you, what are you hearing? Because as of yesterday, as you know, uh, publicly, the House Speaker was saying one thing. Privately, the reports were he was saying that they were nowhere near an agreement. What are you hearing? Uh, I'm hearing that uh, they're probably nowhere near an agreement, uh, and it's really hard for me to visualize an agreement, honestly. There are at least uh, a dozen or several dozen Republican members um, that aren't going to agree to anything. Uh, They're more than content to take us over the cliff, Uh, and they're certainly not going to agree to anything that the president would agree to. So I don't know where that leaves us, except that we have a speaker, and this is the first Republican speaker who I think may very well take us over the cliff. Uh, When Paul Ryan was the Republican speaker or John Boehner was, they had at least enough devotion to the institution and to the country not to uh, not to take us over, you know, this cliff, which would result in the loss of, of tens of thousands of dollars in people's retirement accounts. It would mean six million Californians don't get their Social Security checks on time. Uh, it would it would just crash the market, destroy our credit rating. Um, no Republican speaker or Democratic speaker has been willing to do that. But this one, I don't know. All right, uh, Congressman Adam Schiff, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. And by the way, we just now heard back from Congresswoman Luna's office and responding to uh, our queries about uh, this uh, you know, notion that she would like to have uh, Congressman Schiff uh, censured and fined $16 million. It says that this is a privileged resolution and it is the right thing for House leadership to support and bring accountability and respect back to the House of Representatives. And then uh, she goes on to say in a statement, all members of Congress must be held to the standard. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. A lot of opinions out there about L.A. County's zero bail policy that is now in effect. So here to uh, help explain what it means to the public and those accused of crimes is L.A. County District Attorney George Gascon. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Good afternoon. So very briefly explain to people who may not be familiar with what it means, although it seems to be pretty self-explanatory, but... What is a zero bail policy? How does that differ from what we had? Yeah, and and, and I'm glad that you asked that because I think there is a lot of misunderstanding. First of all, the litigation uh, only involves the LAPD and the LA Sheriff Department. So that's important to understand. Number two, it does not include people that have committed serious or violent offenses. It doesn't include people that are being arrested for domestic violence, for assaults. Those people are off the table. Also, it does not include people that have a pending case. So let's say that you got arrested even for a low-level misdemeanor like theft. If you get rearrested again, this doesn't apply to you. You get to stay in custody or you get to post bail. What this is really is a lawsuit that was implemented against the county, uh, the county sheriff and the LAPD, and it really follows a Supreme Court decision that came out, uh, you know, over a year ago that basically indicated that constitutionally, you cannot hold people in pretrial custody just simply because they cannot afford to pay bail unless they are dangerous or unless they're likely to reoffend. 
So it's really based on the due process clause of the you know, it's a constitutional right that you're presumed to be innocent until proven guilty. But again, it doesn't apply to people that are dangerous. It doesn't apply to people that already have a pending case. Uh, it doesn't apply to people that are likely to flee the jurisdiction. And what we know is that there are other states, for instance, like New Jersey or Washington, D.C., that have been actually operating in a similar system for many years. And they have not necessarily seen an increase in crime. And the people coming back to court, actually, the percentages are higher, the people that go out on a cash bail. Uh, what it does require, and eventually I think that the county will do so, is we need to create a better system of notifying people and reminding people that they need to come back uh, to, the, to see their court date. But the data actually indicates that this is unlikely to cause more crime. Uh, and this is actually likely to to help uh, people actually get back and take care of their cases when they're they're supposed to. And frankly, it is going to cure a problem that we have in our county jail that we're overcrowded. And sometimes we have people that are dangerous and they're being released because there's not enough space. Right. So this way, you have people that are not likely to be dangerous. They will be able to go, go on with their life, go to work or whatever, and come back and handle their case at a later date. Well, Mr. District Attorney, I want to ask you, based on the constitutional aspect of this, that, uh, that you know, uh, bail for those low-level offenders who aren't dangerous is unconstitutional because if you don't have money, then you're stuck in jail. But if you do have money, you get out, and that's not fair. I get that point. I understand that. But then on the other hand, then you have a dangerous criminal, Right. And if they happen to have money and the judge has okayed a bail release in this case, the rich, dangerous criminal is able to get out while the poor, dangerous criminal. So we have that constitutional problem again right there. So how do you solve this this intractable issue? Well, and, and you raise a, a, a point of contention that I bring all the time. Look, I am personally against cash bail. But I believe that pretrial detention and preventative detention is important, and it goes to the point that you're making. If you have money and you're dangerous, you should still be held back. It doesn't you know how much money you have in your bank account should not predicate whether you're going to get out or not. And in fact, we had a case here about a year and a half ago, an individual that had done uh, multiple follow-home robberies. He kept bailing out, and then he wound up murdering someone, right? This, people, this individual actually collectively posted nearly a half a million dollars in bail, and he kept harming people because he was allowed to bail out. And people like that should not be allowed to bail out. Conversely, if you have people that are not presenting a danger, but they don't have the money, they should be released. So the, the, the solution to this really is that we should have the capacity, and we do constitutionally, to hold people back that are dangerous or people that are likely to reoffend. And those that are not dangerous or likely to reoffend, give an opportunity to go back about their, you know, go on about their life and then come back and face, uh, you know, the day in court. All right. Uh, thanks so much, L.A. County District Attorney George Gascon, joining us today on uh, In Depth. Well, uh, top prosecutors from states all across the country, they've joined a huge lawsuit against the avid telecom telecommunications company. Why? Because of, well, let's. <laughs> Put it the only way people know it, <laughs> annoying, <laughs> annoying robocall. And that company accused of making more than seven and a half billion, billion 
robocalls to people who are on the do not call registry. Why do I think I got most of those billions I, of calls? I bet you, I did, too. Yeah. Uh, Sean Collins is an attorney in Newport Beach who focuses on consumer litigation and enforcement as well as data and privacy security. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me, guys. So these people are on the Do Not Call Registry. I remember that was such a big deal when uh, that was first instituted, but it's really turned out to be nothing, right? Because it doesn't seem to help. Yeah, well, so here's the thing. It certainly does help, but like any good law, when you create the law, uh, businesses and people out there in the marketplace come up with ways to basically thread the needle and find loopholes in the law. And so what's happened is you had this great piece of legislation with the Telephone Consumer Protection Act that was created. And then you have some other ones. So the TCPA was created in 1991. You also have the telemarketing sales rule that exists out there that was created in 1995 and has been revamped like five times since then. These laws work, but like most laws, once they're created, businesses find out what they have to comply with and then find loopholes or ways to work around them. So what you're experiencing, because I experiencing I experience it as well. I get those annoying phone calls on my cell phone all day long, and that's people just finding ways to work around the law. Now, obviously, there are people who are still in violation of the law. Um, your name does appear on a do not call registry, and they call it anyway. So, Sean, I'm curious. Uh, we, you know, we reached out to this uh, avid telecom communications company. We have not heard back. Uh, have you heard back from them as a result of your lawsuit? And if so, what have they said? So I, so I did not file the lawsuit. So I am a consumer protection attorney. So I typically defend companies. Um, I don't, I am not the defense counsel for um, Abbott Telecom. Um, and I don't know who their defense counsel is. But I will say that this lawsuit is unique in that you have 49 attorneys general. So there's 48 state AGs, and I believe the 49th is the District of Columbia. These are very rare. So these are called multi-state um, lawsuits, and they don't happen very often. So I actually was involved in one of the last ones that happened whereby you had 40 or more states pool resources to bring a lawsuit against one company. And I was involved in one where... 48 states at the time brought a lawsuit against DirecTV. So this is very rare that you have this many states aggregate to bring a lawsuit. So I'll say that's unique. Now, another thing that's very unique about this lawsuit, because I've been reading through it um, and looking at the charges that they brought, they're bringing sort of a unique theory here, because if you've read through the lawsuit, they're not saying that Avid has actually violated the TCPA or the telemarketing sales rule or any of the, the many FTC acts in some of these states. What they're saying is that they have facilitated the violation of these laws. So it's almost as if they're saying you aided and abetted companies to violate the TCPA or the telemarketing sales rule. So I find that very interesting because it's a novel. This question, I get a call about three or four times a day, and I am not exaggerating. And uh, they always leave a message. The calls come from some of the numbers are in California. Some of them are from this area. But a lot of the calls, they come from all over the country. It's a different number every time, but they leave the same message. Something about HVAC, drought tolerant, landscaping, cool roof, solar, etc. Those are the key words in this. It's always the same message. Is that something that was aided and abetted by this avid telecom? And if that's the case, can we find these people and sue them too? <laughs> So that's a great question. So that's actually one of the allegations that is being made in the complaint is that they're saying that Avid Telecom was selling software to companies that allowed them to mask 
the true identity of the number being called. So for instance, one of the things that drives me nuts, and I'm sure it drives you guys nuts as well. So I live in, I, you know, I, I live in Orange County, work in Newport Beach, California. So I have a 949 cell phone number. What they'll do is, so Abbott sold software that allows telemarketing companies to use a 949 number to call me. So now I kind of have to answer it because I don't know if it's a parent from one of my kids' little leagues or if it's a parent or if it's one of the teachers at my kid's school calling me to tell me something important. So I pick up and then I have some guy try to sell me insurance or, you know, HVAC or whatever, whatever the sale may be. And so that's one of the allegations that the states are making against Abbott is saying, you gave them software that allowed them to mask the true identity of their number and make it seem as if Sean's kid's school is calling him or if a parent on one of Sean's Little League teams is calling him and he was forced to pick up the phone call. Sean, do you know, does this happen in other countries or is this something robocalls that only Americans are privileged to get? So it does happen in other countries. I will say that it is probably more amplified in the U.S., just because, look, you know, we are a free market enterprise society. So there is nothing wrong with a telemarketer basically saying, hey, I want to call these 10,000 numbers on this list to try to sell them something. Where it becomes a violation of the law is when they step outside the boundaries of what we said is deemed to be appropriate when doing that. So, for instance, with the telemarketing sales rule or even with the, tele the uh, TCPA. We have said that as long as you have a pre-existing business relationship with somebody, so if I go to Dick's Sporting Goods and I give them my contact information and I tell them, hey, it's okay if you call me to let me know about discounts and sales, Dick's now has a pre-existing business relationship with me. So when they call me or text me to try to sell me something, there's nothing wrong with that. Now, if I tell them, hey, Dick's, I'd like you to put me on your do not call list and I don't want you calling me or texting me anymore. They now have to put that number on a list. And if they call me after that, that's a problem. Mm. All right. Uh, Sean Collins, attorney in uh, Newport Beach. And, you know, we we pointed out that we uh, did reach out to Avid Telecom for a statement, but we uh, uh, didn't hear back. But that's kind of a scary thought in itself, Charles, because if we reached out to Avid Telecom, aren't we now going to be on their list and we're going to start getting a lot of robocalls? But you would think that a company that is so adept, apparently, at, <laughs> at sending out millions and millions of robocalls. Right. Bill, billions. Call, yeah, billions yeah. could actually call us back. Right, right. But apparently, it's only one call. Yeah, they didn't want to do that. Well, that's going to do it for KNX in depth today. We'll uh, be back again tomorrow at 1 p.m.